So yeah, um, just got a new mixing board and I thought I had it set up correct, uh, but apparently I didn't. Uh, so it, it recorded my brother's bubbles very well, thank God, because that's, you know, more of what I care about when I have guests on my podcast, but, um, so, so I apologize. It sounds like I'm standing like 10 feet away talking and asking the questions. A little bit of an exaggeration, but um, I wish I would have, you know, taken just a little bit more time and had it set up perfectly. But anyways, uh, enough of me apologizing. Uh, Enjoy the podcast. You're now listening to the Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf. Lone Wolf. The Lone Wolf Podcast. Good evening. How's it going? Thanks for having me on. This is really exciting. <laughs> Even though I know you promised me that I was going to be the number one episode, and I'm number like what four now. That is true. I interviewed. Yeah, you interviewed some some guy, some black guy. No offense. <laughs> no, I have nothing against black people, but you interviewed him first before your brother. At a, at, at Mavis Coffee, which I was supposed yeah. to do in Germania, so I just I backstabbed two people at once. It's yeah. okay. <laughs> I can forgive you. I mean, we are cut from the same fabric after all. <laughs> <laughs> so what were you talking about? So, we, so you were asking about modafinil. You were asking yeah. about smart drugs. And I told you that if you're going to try modafinil, you should probably do a little bit of research first to find out what kind of side effects it has and what kind of drug interactions it has with Keppra. So for those of you who don't know, for those of you who are, are maybe um, novices when it comes to smart drugs, there's a whole industry out there of, of, of there's a whole smart drug industry out there of people, mainly people from Silicon Valley that are constantly looking for ways to sort of improve their brains and improve their cognition. And so there's a bunch of companies out there that sell what are called smart drugs. And essentially, I will give you the basic components of most smart drug stacks. Usually there's some sort of racetam, which is either aniracetam, oxyracetam, paracetam. These are drugs that were developed by the Soviet Union. And um, supposedly they increase cognitive performance. They're like considered to be like a steroid for the brain. Uh, usually they will contain a choline source. So choline um, is one of those substances that's good for improving memory and cognition. Uh, in fact, Joe Rogan's Alpha Brain. Sorry, what uh, was it called? What was the drug that they used? To, or what was that substance? That, modafinil? No, they used the, the certain ingredient that it's used to. Like paras, like the racetams. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. The racetams, they're they're a, they're a class of they're a class of drugs. So when people say that they're not drugs, they are a drug. It's a pharmaceutical agent, but it's just not regulated by the FDA. So it's whenever you buy racetam, it falls under the guise of a supplement, but it's an actual pharmaceutical agent. 
But so, so most of your, most of your nootropics, uh, which nootropics, by the way, are drugs that enhance cognitive performance. Um, they're going to include some sort of racetam. Usually it's going to be oxyracetam or paracetam or both a choline source, usually nupep. Nupep is, um, a drug that's very similar to the racetams, but it's supposed to be shorter acting and more powerful. I can tell you whenever I take nupep, it just sort of makes everything in the room seem brighter. It's really bizarre. <laughs> I've never I've never done psilocybin, um, and uh, there's usually there's usually a couple other substances too. I'm 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 kind of drawing a blank. Usually magnesium. Some places will will add in tyrosine, stuff like that. But magnesium is good for you regardless of, of whether or not you want to use it for cognitive enhancement. But the the mother of all cognitive enhancers, um, at least the the drug that's that's been hot ever since 2009, ever since Dave Asprey. Which, if you don't know who Dave Asprey is, just go watch like Joe Rogan episode seventy-eight or something Bio like that. Right yeah, Dave Asprey, he's um, uh, he's kind of a con man, uh, but he was a big promoter of of taking modafinil for cognitive enhancement. So modafinil, it's a drug called a um, euro eurogenic or something like that, or or eugeroic. That's it. Eugenics. No, 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 not <laughs> eugenics. Not no. That's Margaret Sanger. Uh, it's called a eugeroic, and a eugeroic uh, is just a fancy term for a, a wakefulness promoting agent. And so, modafinil, it's a drug that when you ingest it, it goes into your bloodstream and it causes uh, a release of histamine in your brain. And uh, those of you who've taken antihistamines know what it's like to have a drug that works against histamine, it makes you tired. So, if you take a drug that releases histamine in your brain, it's going to make you more awake. It also uh, blocks GABA, so GABA aminobutyric acid, which is a neurotransmitter that um, basically suppresses brain activity. So you have, uh, at opposite ends of the pole, you have the most uh, excitatory neurotransmitter, which is glutamate. So the more glutamate you have in your brain, the more uh, excited your brain's going to be. And then you have the most inhibitory, which is GABA, GABA amino gamma aminobutyric acid. And so GABA, whenever you go to sleep at night or before you go to sleep, your, your, your body, your brain starts, uh, starts um, um, releasing more GABA. And GABA kind of helps calm your brain and settle it down and it, it induces sleep. Uh, GABA receptors are also the receptors that uh, alcohol works on. So alcohol works on your GABA receptors and so do what are called benzodiazepines like Xanax, um, clonopin, Clonazepam. Is that why I guess the GABA? Is that why you get sleepy after you drink? I guess. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's part of the reason gotcha. why you get sleepy whenever you consume alcohol because it works on GABA. So modafinil blocks GABA receptors. So it, it basically prevents GABA from binding to the receptor sites in your brain. And then the last thing that it does is it uh, releases norepinephrine, uh, which is a is a it's an excitatory hormone basically that's released by your by your adrenal glands and it also uh blocks the reuptake of dopamine dopamine is the feel-good neurotransmitter it's the rewarding neurotransmitter so that's how it works but the reason i wanted to kind of wait have you do some research before you took it is because um you know th there is a very very small percentage of people that will develop a, a severe adverse reaction to it known as a Stephen Johnson's syndrome. And Stephen Johnson's syndrome is basically when your body's immune system starts to attack your skin. 
and your skin starts to like slough off like you've had a burn and it can be deadly. Now, it's very, very rare to have this happen to you. You have a much greater chance of developing Steven Johnson syndrome from taking antibiotics. But, um, and chances are, since I've taken, I've taken modafinil and I've taken armadafinil dozens of times and I've had no issues and you're cut from the same genetic cloth, you probably won't have any issues, but so, so just my, something to, my, my past with seizures wouldn't No seizures, seizures has nothing. Seizures have nothing to do with that. Um, so, you know, uh, as far as I know, and I've done a lot of research on, on modafinil, it doesn't decrease your seizure threshold. So for those of you listening who don't understand how seizures work, uh, whenever medical professionals, and by the way, I'm a registered nurse and I've, I've, uh, got a, I'm going to have a master's degree by the end of this spring in nursing. Uh, the way that uh, a seizure works is, is, well, us medical professionals, we refer to the seizure threshold. And so if you imagine like the seizure threshold is a fence in your brain, okay, the higher the fence is, the higher the seizure threshold, the harder it is for the seizure, which is, think of the seizure as like a rabid dog. Mm. The harder it is for it to jump over that fence like and cause you to have a, a seizure. Like Mexicans trying to have the border wall. <laughs> Well, you know what you know what the you know what the lefties always say. You show me a twenty foot wall, and I'll show you a twenty two foot ladder. <laughs> yeah. Well, just say that to Obama, who has a wall erected around his house in New York and DC, yeah. and all the other places he has homes. See, I won't get off on too much of a tangent, but uh, the pins that the see, I'm in a contradiction in my, in my mind. I don't know if that's the right word. I'm torn. Because I do love cinema in the process of it, but I absolutely hate almost everyone in the system. Are you talking about people in Hollywood? Yeah, with the Oscars yeah. last night, there were, there were <clears throat> lapel pins that were, it was uh, a red and white American flag was supposed to symbolize anti-guns, basically anti-Second Amendment. Mm, yeah. Meanwhile, they said, I think it was like 300 <coughs> to six, Excuse me. 300, like hundreds of armed police officers were guarding them. Of course, of course. Hypocrisy. We can, we can talk about that uh, if you if you know if you want to. Obviously, I want to finish my train of thought, but we can definitely talk yeah, about that. Sure. And I also too, I, I listened to episode three, and I I I, I have to say that I might I, I might make our uncle Jeff a little angry if he listens to this podcast because I really there's a lot of things that I don't like about Trump, and I want to bring some of those up too. Gotcha. Sorry um, for that train. If you hear, by the way, there's a there's a train tracks right by uh, the house here. Yeah, I live literally about 100 yards from a train. So, by the way, if you're list, if you happen to find this podcast and you're like in San Francisco or you're somewhere in the world, if you find this podcast, it's 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 absolutely amazing that you that you that you found it. But uh, my name is John Wolf. I am absolutely uh, nobody famous. I'm nobody important whatsoever. I am a 32 uh, year old male. I live in Alton, Illinois. Uh, Alton is a very, very small town, about 20 minutes outside of St. Louis. I'm a Midwestern boy. I'm a. Uh, I work as a, an, an electronic health record system analyst, but I've got three degrees in nursing. Uh, I'm a registered nurse by training, and I've been married for 13 years, and I've got four children. But I'm just a plain average Joe, nobody important whatsoever. So, but anyway, what what the well, I think that's relative to what you consider important. But true, I'll save that. <laughs> My bad. You said you wanted. No, to that's okay. It. Yeah. So we were talking about the yeah. seizure threshold. So I, I really am amazed that I remembered what I was saying gotcha. five minutes well, ago. You're but very, you're, you're on. You're, you're not as quite as like 
oh my god, how do you have that much information in your brain as Jeff? But you're almost there. No, Jeff is like uh, is like autistic smart. <laughs> it's like you you obviously um, you you Jeff, I love you. You're a very, very smart man. That's all I'm going to say. All right. So anyway, the seizure threshold. Uh, so I, I use the fence analogy. So the higher the fence is, the harder it is for the rabid dog, or as you said, the rabid Mexican, to jump over the fence and cause a seizure. Well, the lower the fence, the lower the seizure threshold, the easier it is for the rabid dog to get over. So if we talk about a drug lowering the seizure threshold, it means that it, the drug is, is, is seizuregenic. It means that it makes it easier for you to have a seizure. So some common drugs that make it easier for you to have a seizure. Benadryl. Benadryl lowers your seizure threshold. Um, Vicodin lowers your seizure threshold. Fentanyl. I believe, I believe fentanyl. I believe it does. Yeah. Yeah. Fentanyl is a painkiller. I could be wrong about that one. I know a lot of opiates will lower your seizure threshold. Tramadol lowers your, like dramatically lowers your seizure threshold. There's a lot of drugs. Um, if you overdose on Xanax and you come into the hospital, we're going to give you a drug called Ramazicon, and it's a drug that uh, reverses the effect of Xanax. It dramatically lowers your seizure threshold. So anyway, so you, as far as I know, modafinil does not lower your seizure threshold. So you should be fine when it comes to taking it. But I would, I would, if you want to experiment with it, I would, I would start yeah, off I with think a my biggest thing is just I gotta, I gotta change dose. my diet. I just. I mean, I don't, I do the uh, intermittent fasting, but I don't eat. You don't eat healthy? As well as I should. Yeah. For sure. And I think. Uh, so, well, um, intermittent fasting, what is that again? So, the one I do is the 18-6, so, or I'm sorry, the 16-8. So, 16 hours a day I fast and eight hours I eat. I know some people can do it more extreme, like 20, 20 hours they fast, four hours they eat. I think I, I eased up a little bit and might be doing like a 10-14 or 14-10 just because I, with things, you know, demands in life, you kind of need to, you can't be super strict on your on your diet, realistically. And, and what exactly are the benefits of that? Well, I forget word for word, but basically it helps uh, balance your hormonal levels, I believe, um, helps promote weight loss helps promote like healthy gut and whatnot but the thing is when i eat i eat terrible i eat carbs so it's like i'm totally i'm reversing well from from what i understand about intermittent fasting it as long as you're sticking to the fasting window you can be a little bit more relaxed about the types of foods that you eat so you know obviously you don't want to eat like twinkies and whatnot (laughs) but um you don't have to be like real super strict about the type of food you eat as long as it's high quality food. Well, I think here's where I kind of, especially lately, I've been really kind of like off track is I'll get something to drink besides water before my time, but I'll actually wait until like 11 or 12 uh, to eat any solid foods. But I'm basically ruining the fats because you're not supposed to some with enzymes and that's what they say, but I don't know. I don't know how much research they've done into that into that assertion. It doesn't make sense to me that if you were doing intermittent fasting and you drank black coffee, gotcha. that that would somehow throw off your your fasted state. It doesn't make gotcha. sense. So I'm a little skeptical about that. Now, obviously, if you're drinking coffee with creamer and you're putting sugar and butter or whatever it is that you put yeah. in your coffee, that's going to throw off your fast. <laughs> but but seriously, what I do. 
Yeah, we'll see. Now that's a problem. Gotcha. But it's still better, you know, even if you only get even if you only get a 10 hour fast in, it's better than what a lot of people do. A lot of people will go to bed at two in the morning, they'll eat pizza before they go to bed, they wake up at six, they grab a donut with yeah. a cup of coffee and they go off to work and they don't even exercise. So, you know, you just have to kind of compare yourself in light of right. the average American. True. Um, yeah, I would say I put a lot more pressure on myself yeah. with a lot of things than the average American does. Um, yeah, we, we need to get back in the gym for sure, lifting yeah. weights. But um, if I don't run or do anything, I absolutely feel like guilty. I just like look at myself in the mirror like a piece of crap. What was wrong with you? I tell you what's really good for me, feeling wise, and just like uh, for my body and also for my mental state, is uh, going for a run on an empty stomach. I don't know if there's something like biological that's happening with that, but I like going out for a run at La Vista. Like there's. I really love running up this hill. It's like a really steep hill. It's really, really challenging. But it's an awesome view when you get to the top and there's this cross that I can kind of lean on to rest. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I, do you know, like, with your, your background, is there something beneficial to running well, on I know, stomach? I know. Yeah, well, obviously, if you work out on an empty stomach, you're going to burn more fat, especially if you've gone a long time between your last meal and the time that you start your workout. Um, because your your body is going to be in a state of ketosis. Well, essentially, so here's here's kind of how it works. For, and this is just my my understanding of uh, uh, human physiology. So if you let's say your last meal is at eight o'clock at night, and you go to sleep at ten, you wake up at five, you start your workout by six. So you've gone what is that? Ten hours without eating, and so you're going to start your workout and. You're going to deplete the glycogen that's in your muscles pretty quickly. And then your body's going to start reaching in for glycogen stores in your liver to convert that glycogen to glucose. So what your body does when you're not feeding glucose into your system is it converts glycogen, which is um, um, it's a, it's a type of glucose that's stored in your muscles and also in your liver. It converts it from your muscles first and then in your liver. And then once it depletes the glycogen stores in your body, it starts pulling fat and it will take fat and convert fat into glucose. It's the, the phenomenon is known as gluconeogenesis. So it's the development of, it's the, it's the creation or the synthesis of glucose uh, from within your body intrinsically. And so, yeah, so if you work out on an empty stomach, you're going to, you're going to have a greater chance of burning fat. Right. Yeah. Well, I think just, I don't know. I'm a big, like, I'm weird because I present myself much like much like a jock would, or I guess the typical city type. But I'm I'm an absolute nature. I'm like a hippie at heart. So I I don't know if it's my surroundings that makes me feel good, or like uh, do you think running on an empty stomach probably and not putting weighing yourself down with food, uh, just not having any lactic acid or anything weigh you down? Do you think that maybe I think I think. Help? Yeah. Think well, I think for you, it's probably a combination of that and very, very high estrogen levels. <laughs> I just get up to the top and I start crying. It's just so beautiful. I got up there and I looked, I looked at the cross and I just thought of Jesus yeah. and I just started crying. I tell you what, though, we uh, at least one of these days, I really, we really need to get back in the in the gym. Me specifically, because I. Well, I've been going to the gym. Yeah, I, I, I have. I, I've been. I've 
I'm doing a dramatically different routine. So I do uh, a lot of intense cardio at the gym, and then I've been doing kettlebell workouts at home. I've been doing you know, a lot of kettle swings, a lot of kettle snatches, a lot of kettle push presses, kettle kettlebell, front squats, Ooh. stuff like that. Like really, really high rep, intense stuff. Not like powerlifting, although I, I, I've got to get back into powerlifting because I found out that next month, the high school that I graduated from, Walton High School, in Alton, Illinois, is going to be having an alumni an alumni football uh, game or an 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 alumni association football game. So basically, all the people that played football for Alton High and have graduated, they're invited to come out, and there's going to be a football game where we're going to play against the other high school team in Alton, which is Marquette High School. And so uh, that's going to be happening in like six weeks. So I want to kind of, you know, start hitting the heavyweights right. again so I can get ready for them. Yeah, I think my biggest thing was uh, I just got to get back in that mind space. I'm totally, I've totally left. It's like I took that, that mind frame of like really guilt, guilting myself to go to the gym. I took it. I went out to a desert and dug a hole like Joe Pesci and Casino, stuffed it in there. And burn whatever remains there. There's a lot of holes in the desert, and a lot of those problems end up in those freaking holes. Although he didn't say freaking. By the way, interesting factoid, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard this. It it, it may have been surpassed by now, but I've heard that uh, that scene in Casino where he meets um, uh, where he meets uh, Robert De Niro. Niro. What's his name? What's the character's name? The lefty. Oh gosh, lefty. I think his name is Lefty. That was his name in real life. I think Lefty. Something. Yeah, anyway, whenever he meets him out in the desert, that uh, he still holds the record for the most uses of the F word within uh, a very, very short period of time. Uh, like, I think it's like 32 F words in gosh. less than two minutes. Well, you know, I got a feeling like, because uh, with Taxi Driver, um, that was improvised. That was like obviously one of the most historic phrases oh. in cinema history. You're talking to me? Yeah. yeah. I think... I got a feeling like just the way that it felt so natural and just like awesome. I got a feeling like Scorsese said, hey, here's what's happening in the scene. Go at it. Because you guys obviously know what you're doing. I don't know. I could be wrong. I couldn't imagine. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know Scorsese's style. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I read somewhere that Scorsese like sort of let people like he sort of gave the actors room to be themselves. Yeah. He didn't control them. Yeah. You know, unlike a Alfred Hitchcock or uh, uh, who's the other guy? Kubrick. Kubrick, yeah. They were just, they were psychotic when they, in the way that they controlled the actors. Well, it was weird. They said Kubrick, he was, he wasn't like screaming and demanding, but he was. There's no reason. I I don't care how trained your eyes for cinema. There's no reason why, like for in wise eye, eyes wide shut, they had not, Tom Cruise walk through a door 96 times or something like that mm-hmm. in the 90s. There's no, you can do a trained eye. There's, there's no way you could tell enough of a difference to justify doing that many takes. And that's not even the worst part. They did like 200 takes when uh, Shelley Duvall was uh, swinging the bat at Jack Nicholson when he was walking up the stairs in The Shining. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See? Well, I'd, I had read somewhere that that child, that the, or the, the, the boy actor, yeah. that he never played in another movie again. And part of it was because he was so traumatized by Kubrick. Because he was so overbearing. Well, you know, that's what happens whenever you, you know, have a lot of late nights filled with cocaine and and whatever else Kubrick was on. Kubrick was a nut job. He was like a conspiracy theorist. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was a little crazy. Have you ever heard his daughter talk? 
Oh, Vivian? Yeah, she's complete yeah, she's psycho. A Scientologist. I, I don't. Oh, she's a Scientologist. Okay, well, that, that explains everything. And she has a British accent, I guess, because she was born in England right. and, and raised over there. But well, she's raised by a New Yorker. <laughs> yeah, she, she doesn't make sense. She was interviewed, or she uh, was interviewed by Alex Jones one time. And uh, Alex Jones was like, yeah, yeah, I interviewed Stanley Kubrick's daughter. <laughs> you know, she's legit. <laughs> You know, you know, you know they you know they killed her dad, right? They gave him a heart attack. They had you one of those what? CIA heart attack guns. As much as I try not to be like a uh, uh, what was his name, Eddie Bravo, mm-hmm. yeah, Eddie Bravo. conspiracy theorist, I do think that there is kind of something weird about that. They well, died in the editing process of a film that I think was exposing what Kubrick knew about what you're finding out about Hollywood now. Just these weird cult parties where you know powerful people are. Having sex yeah. and doing that, I don't know. Just, well, my question is, um, what, what would they accomplish by killing him? The movie was still released. People still saw the movie. In fact, true. killing him would actually uh, cause people to be even more uh, conspiratorial. Gotcha. You know, it's it's like it's like if you if you want people to not catch your drug fueled uh, underage sex parties, if you're a Hollywood actor, or Hollywood director, the last thing you want to do is kill the guy that's making a movie exposing it. Right. Yeah, so I don't know. I I, I well, think that people are looking for patterns where. Well, and also, well, technically, the movie is based off of a book called Charm Novel. Oh, there you go. Was that scene? Was that scene in the movie too, or was that scene in the book rather? I think so. Yeah. So the there whole the whole idea of the film is it's basically a dream. So none of that. It's basically blurring the lines of reality and a dreamlike state. So that's why they said with the set design of that film. It didn't. It was supposed to be uh, Greenwich Village in New York, but it, it obviously looked fake. So apparently that was done on purpose. So was it a dream in the book? I think so. Okay, well they didn't tell you that in the movie. They didn't. No, that was uh, Kubrick's problem. Right. I'll, I, I'll never forget. Whenever I watched 2001: A Space Odyssey, I thought this guy did way too much psilocybin. <laughs> I mean, I understand that he was a baby boomer and he was a part of, you know, that whole 19, 1960s culture. But come on, I don't know what kind of artistic message message you're trying to send by spending thirty minutes, you know, doing this weird technicolor, technicolor yeah. montage. Come where he was basically like flying through the, the universe. Yeah, <laughs> it was right after the, um, hey Al or whatever you know that oh, that robot. Al nine thousand, I yeah. think. Yeah, the AI. This hurts. Please stop. <laughs> The weirdest scene ever. You know what? Spe- you- speaking of speaking of uh, baby boomers, I know I mentioned Kubrick was a baby boomer. You want to talk about the most worthless generation to ever walk the face of the earth? This is something I got to get this off my chest. I I know we were no, talking about fine. Hollywood, but most most people in Hollywood that are in power are baby boomers. So I was I was thinking about this. I've been thinking about this for a while, but. You know, baby boomers, they always want to talk bad about millennials and Gen, S or Gen Xers. And they want to say millennials are a bunch of crybabies and they're entitled. Well, who raised the millennials? Who gave birth to the millennials? It's mostly baby boomers. So if you have a problem with millennials, uh, baby boomers, we're the generation that you raised, number one. Number two, let's look at your generation. Okay, so your parents were the greatest generation. They went through the Depression. They fought World War II. They defeated the, the Nazis. They defeated the Japanese imperialists. They hand you a country that was, that was literally the only, really the only country left standing after World War II. They give you all this freedom, all this wealth, and you managed to squander it within 50 years. You managed to, you know, to basically single-handedly cause the 
housing crisis of 2008. You know, it was it was it was mainly boomers that that completely blew up the housing market, and then on top of that, you guys, you, you baby boomers, feel that you're entitled to these ridiculous pension plans where you receive eighty percent of your pay for the rest of your life, and you also want to be entitled to you know social security. Uh, I'm sorry, boomers, you are the worst generation to ever walk the face of the earth. Now, obviously, I have to make this little. You know, I, I, I have to say this, I have to clarify, not all boomers are the worst thing that ever walked the face of the earth. There are some really good baby boomers out there. You know, Terry James, the, the old man that we used to work out with, a Vietnam vet, he's a, he's a great guy, great baby boomer. But there are some pretty, there are some pretty bad ones. I'd say a, a good majority of them are bad and awful. So there we go. And and by the way, millennials millennials suck too. They they all they all voted for Bernie Sanders. Let's just. <laughs> Which, by the way, I won't speak. I won't mention his name, obviously, because I still work there. But the whole like the soy milk thing with estrogen and low testosterone guys. It was so funny. One of the customers came in wearing a Bernie Bernie 2016 shirt, and he ordered a soy latte. I'm like. I'm seeing of course, of course. Like, with my own two eyes of yeah. these conspiracies on with these, oh, yeah. these Reddit trolls. Well, it's mainly coming from 4chan. That's, that's where you have like the true autistic people. Gosh, 4chan is truly – I mean there's there's porn on there. There's almost anything you can find. I've never, I don't think I've ever been to 4chan. I hear people talking about 4chan. I know it's like the last true uh, – uh, what's oh. the word I'm looking for? It's, 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 it's really, like the it, last it, it, truly free um, – discussion board type website like because i because i know reddit they they heavily moderate oh, yeah, your sure. discussion but I've, I've heard that 4chan they don't really moderate anything it's like whatever you want to talk right. about you can talk They're about not on the level of facebook uh reddit but yeah they do yeah they do uh but to be fair there is a lot of perverts on reddit oh yeah there is there is There's all kinds there of is. Like i prefer i prefer i prefer quora quora is more intelligent um, Reddit is like you have a bunch of idiots on there that obviously don't know how to Google, right. and they'll go, they'll get on there and ask ridiculous questions. You know, <laughs> it's like how about you just type it into a search engine? You, right? But 4chan is like the last true frontier. Yeah. It's like it's like anything goes, and you know, I, I don't know. There's a there was a really good documentary that I saw a couple of years ago on Netflix. I can't remember what the name of the documentary is, but it's a it's a it's a documentary about a group of hackers and about the group Anonymous, and the and the the documentary is is essentially about um, Andrew Weave Arenheimer. He's this um, uh, internet troll, white supremacist, uh, just a really wacko guy. But he went to jail back in 2013 for hacking AT&T and and I I'm doing fing, finger quotations when I say hack because he really didn't hack AT&T he basically exposed uh, a weakness in their 4G web browser and he he figured out a way to uh, uh, f to basically find all the email addresses that were that were associated with AT and T, and then he aggregated the email addresses and then gave it to Vice News, and Vice News published an article. Wow. Well, the the uh, Justice Department went after him and threw him in jail. But anyway, uh, the documentary is about Andrew Weave Arenheimer, but. I know after he got out of jail, he was kind of like seen as the pariah because he came out as a as like a white nationalist. But I know like a lot of his friends and like a lot of his peeps, they kind of ended up on 4chan. It's kind of like the place where like radical, you know, anarcho 
like just really, really weird and kind of fringe people go who also happen to know a lot to know a lot about the internet. They kind of go to troll and talk about their ideas and Well, whatnot. I, I that, this is probably like a week ago. I just wanted to look up I was just curious, I was like 4chan. And what came up as like live cams and porn. I'm thinking I thought this was supposed to be like a <clears throat> Yeah, I don't like I don't know. Board. This is, it's a, I, I thought it was just a thread. I thought it was just like a you know like a discussion board, thread board. Well, I think it is, but yeah, I think it's it's that meets Pornhub. <laughs> I see. Well, one of these. <clears throat> well, I won't be going there. Huh? I, I I like I, I said. Judge if you did, <laughs> like like I said, Reddit Reddit's kind of cool. There's some interesting stuff on Reddit. It's a good place to go to get like bro science information. Uh, Quora is good. I subscribe to Quora and I get their emails. You know, you've heard of Quora, right? Yeah, yeah. That's where uh, now is all the answers compiled together is what the twelve steps Jordan Peterson book is about. I yeah, I yeah. Jordan, Jordan Pe- the 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 idea for Jordan Peterson's book, Twelve Rules for Life, mm-hmm. an antidote to chaos. The idea was basically birthed out of a out of a Quora discussion that he was a part of. Mm. I tell you what, I was just thinking about this. Uh, it was just like connected videos, suggested videos. I do like YouTube's algorithm, even though I hate Google. I love love Google's products. Hate Google's the whole trying to be social justice warrior and all that stuff. But uh, I came across Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson. I just thought those are two people you absolutely do not want to debate. Or if you do debate, you better bring like your A plus. Well, you, plus you plus never plus. want to debate a Jewish lawyer. <laughs> number one. I mean, that's just a given. <laughs> You know, Jordan Peterson, he's really kind of an anomaly because he's a Canadian, you know, he's a Canadian guy that, that, that I believe he comes from English and French ancestry, but he's like this, this, this force of nature, like this freak of nature whenever it comes to, he's, he's very, very rhetorically gifted. And, um, yeah, I, I discovered Jordan. So I discovered Jordan, Jordan, Jordan Peterson back in 2016. I was, I was at work and it was kind of late in the afternoon. Everybody had left and I was the only one in my office and I had no work to do. So I decided to start like browsing YouTube and, uh, you know, cause that's what I, that's what I do every now and then when I get bored at work. Um, and anyway, I, I, I saw kind of on the feed, you know, how when you're watching a video, you have videos that pop up on the right-hand side, suggested videos. And it was a video. I saw this like tall, goofy looking guy with curly hair and, uh, I think he had suspenders on. Did that little pose? No, no, it wasn't that. He was just like standing there, and it said, uh, "Professor Schools, uh, social justice warrior," or "Professor Schools, um, uh, transgendered social justice warrior." So I'm like, "Ah, oh, I'm gonna see what this is." So I clicked on it. This is like early, early 2016. This is like maybe not early, but this is probably I don't know September 2016, November, like before he really blew up. And I saw this guy, and I'm like, oh, he's he's kind of interesting. Like, it's this tall, skinny Canadian guy who kind of has a high pitched mm-hmm. voice, and but he really knows a lot about totalitarianism. He understands the difference between Nazism and and uh, fascism and uh, communism, which a lot of a lot of people who claim that they know about those about those three totalitarian ideologies really don't know the difference between them. But anyway, so anyway, um, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So. A little while later, he he popped up on Joe Rogan's show, and I could remember listening to the episode where he was on Joe Rogan's show, and towards the end of the episode, he has this monologue where he starts talking about the the uh, theological archetypes that exist within the cartoon Pinocchio. 
And I thought, this is absolutely, like, this is incredible. I literally had chills. I didn't realize that. Chills going down my spine listening to him talk about the wow. theological archetypes that, that are inherent to the story of Pinocchio. And I thought, this guy, this guy is, this guy is incredible. And anyway, so I, I, I kind of, I was one of the early followers of Jordan Peterson, I like to say. And I kind of saw his fame grow and swell uh, throughout 2017. Until now where he's, you know, I can understand it. Like you've, for most of your life, you've been a professor and did all that stuff. Apparently he still like feels uncomfortable about the nature of like, his income and like, all this fame and stuff. I'm thinking, yeah. did your weight, I mean, I, I, I know money isn't like the pinnacle of success. It's a nice little icing on the cake, but he's apparently, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry. Give me a second. He's apparently just unsure and feels kind of like troubled about where he's getting his money and how he's getting his money, I think. I'm oh, well, he, he needs to not worry about that. Who cares? Well, he's making way more money. Yeah. Well, you know, people people get mad at him um, because they're like, what are you doing with the Patreon money? Well, it's none of your it's none of your business what he's doing with the Patreon money. People are people are paying money to him every month because they want to. Nobody's nobody is being forced to give money to Jordan Peterson every month. Well, and if if he's making sixty eight thousand dollars a month on his Patreon account, then then that's his prerogative. And and I think it's wonderful. You know, it it just goes it just goes to show you that there is a there is a deep need for his message. And those of you who don't know who Jordan Peterson is, I, I cannot do justice to the man's message. You just need to go and listen to him and watch his videos and listen to his lectures, buy his book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. It is absolutely life-changing. He's completely changed my life, as his teachings have, you know. And um, But essentially his message is, is that his message is primarily for, for men, Although women, I think, listen to him too. And his message is primarily that that the world needs you. And the world needs you to to stand up and to reach down deep inside of your soul and to be responsible and to be good men. That's essentially what the message is. It's, 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 his message is all about how you can be a good man and... The best way to be a good man is to start very, very small. You know, to start by cleaning your room. C clean your room. Organize, organize your organize your home. You know, if you're married, take care of your wife. If you have children, take care of your family. Start small and then incrementally over the years, you will keep expanding your domain of influence. And if everybody decides to do that, then the world will be a completely different place. Now, do you think? Because I, I haven't, uh, I haven't jumped into the rabbit hole of his content. Does he, does he preach more of like marathon type thinking rather than? Because like young guy, I think young people tend to, especially me, I tend to try to avoid this trap. But oh, like oh, I want this now. Does he kind of like preach like, hey, be patient. Think about the marathon rather than the sprint. Or I, th I think I think he encompasses both, gotcha. because whenever it comes to life, there's the, you, you know you obviously have to have short term thinking and you have to have long term thinking. You know most people, and I include myself into in, in, into this analysis. Most people don't think about what their life is going to be like seven years down the road. Most people don't have a plan for where they want to be five to seven years down the road, and um, you know so. Jordan Peterson's message is, is, you know, you need to start small, obviously. You need to fix what's in front of you. 
but you also need to start once once you develop a decent amount of order in your life then you can start planning further out into the future if your life is completely chaotic and by chaotic i mean let's say that you are a hoarder and you live in a room with a bunch of other guys and you got you know or you live in a house with a bunch of other young guys and you're all deadbeats and you spend your entire uh, every night partying and you sleep in and you work a dead end job and you know you're just a useless sack of garbage right you have so much chaos in your life that you're not going to be able to to project your thoughts 7 years into the future and 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 think about who you want to be with any degree of clarity so what his message is you need to start very 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 small and so get up make your bed <laughs> like literally just make your bed and then every time you walk into your room and you see your bed that's made and that's clean and and nice you will be reminded of 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 how important it is to become a better person right you will in the midst of the chaos of your life you will see something that's orderly and the thought is that that will inspire you to become even more orderly so then let's say you make your bed and then you decide okay I'm going to clean my room up and I'm going to organize my books then you clean your room and you organize your books now you have an entire space that's yours that's completely clean and orderly and I truly believe that's a that's a revolutionary idea just starting small by organizing your life and getting rid of as much chaos as you can and then once you get rid of enough chaos to where you have more stability then you can start thinking about the future but one of the things that Jordan Peterson talks about a lot too is that you you have to have some chaos in your life too you can't get rid of all the chaos so he often says that you need to stand between the border of order and chaos you need to straddle it one foot in chaos one foot in order but if your life is so chaotic then then you know you're going to be you're not going to be able to function but if your life is too orderly you're not going to be able to think creatively enough or outside of the box enough to make any kind of positive change yeah i was thinking what's the fun in that like <laughs> yeah well, i t- i tend to i think as i get older i tend to fall into the uh i tend to be too orderly gotcha you know well i mean it's fair you got kids and yeah. responsibility but 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 chaos is chaos is necessary and chaos is kind of fun too gotcha you know yeah what do you what do you think you think it's just mo- motivates you to be well yeah yeah i, I will i guess or how to, like, well no i th- so i mean i think that i think that chaos is what is what has driven human evolution i think that our that our brains are wired for a certain degree of chaos and this is actually true when you look at the role that dopamine plays mm-hmm. in 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 rewarding you so, you know, let's say that you are an animal out on the uh, plains of Africa and uh, you hear a sound in the bushes, right? And you 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 go to investigate that sound. Just by you making the 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 step towards that sound to investigate what it is, your body starts rele- releasing dopamine. And because it's 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 you're exploring something new. And so your body your brain becomes becomes interested in what you're exploring. So your body releases or so your brain releases a little bit of dopamine to keep you interested. And this is something that's that's actually really helpful when it comes to when it comes to drug addiction too. Most people assume that drug addicts are addicted to a substance, but it's actually a little bit more subtle than that. Drug addicts are not addicted to a substance. 
so much as they're addicted to the pursuit of the substance gotcha. or the pursuit of the high. Well, yeah. So your so your your brain releases more dopamine pursuing the drug oftentimes than it does actually consuming the drug. You know, it's funny actually. I, I'm remembering. So you 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 jumped down a rabbit hole of like Jordan Peterson, these heady people. Uh, my my rabbit hole is Joey Diaz. <laughs> Joey Diaz, he's a stand-up comedian, oh, and he's he's on Joe Rogan's podcast a lot. He's a Cuban guy from I'm New York. He talks like this. He's got to be on record, probably one of the funniest people ever. Oh, he's he's absolutely he is the funniest person I've ever heard in my entire life, <laughs> bar none. The only other person I've heard that was that made me laugh almost as much is Dave Chappelle back during his heyday. Yeah. But even Dave Chappelle cannot hold a candle up oh, to Joey Diaz. Joey Diaz is so funny. I think it's cool. He likes to keep his shows intimate so he gets like anxiety if you were to do these big rooms like Rogan does. <laughs> but I love it. When we saw him at the Helium Club, it was like 80 to 100 people. Yeah. And I love the fact that when he screams, he overpowers a microphone. It's like the Joey Diaz experience. You right, just right. feel like your face is melting off. Well, we were literally, I mean, less than 20 feet away from the stage. Uh, you know. And there was one time it was it was surreal. He looked right at me, and we made eye contact. And I'm like, "Here's the guy that I've been that I've been listening to for years on Joe Rogan's podcast. I've watched a lot of his videos on YouTube, and now he's right there." Like, I didn't feel starstruck. I don't understand people that feel starstruck, but it was about as close as as, as I'm ever going to get to being starstruck. Right. Having jo- Joey Diaz, the fat, the fat <laughs> greaseball Cuban, make eye contact with me. Man, seriously. I know that he's probably going to die younger than he should just because of all the cocaine and all that stuff. But it's going to be a sad day. He's not exactly the healthiest person either. It's going to be a sad day for me whenever he passes, for sure. Are you going to cry? I may. If if you cry, don't don't call me. I'm not going to give you any consolation. I'm not going to give you a shoulder to cry on. I'm going to tell you to be a man. Suck it up, all right? Just like Joey Diaz would. Living like a doctor. (laughs) No. I don't know. It's, I don't. I don't. I don't put my identity in him. But it's just like, man. Yeah, right. Just thinking about all those stories, because like, just whenever you think, okay, he's peeled back all layers of his onion. No, it's like, oh, I got another layer, and another story. It's like, Jesus. Yeah, Christ. yeah. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know how he can have so many stories. Oh my gosh. You know, because the, the, well, think about it. he lived in North Bergen, New Jersey, which is like twenty. North Bergen, New Jersey. <laughs> so, I think it's like. 20 minutes away from Manhattan or New York. And then he lived in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, Snowmass Village, which is basically Aspen. Lived in Seattle. Lived in L.A. So he's just been all over the country. And just think about all the different... Well, I think it has less to do about where he lived and more to do with the fact that the guy... Uh, grew up with a mother who owned a bar who was also a criminal who was addicted to cocaine... His stepfather was barred from entering into New Jersey. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, his stepdad was such a such a prolific criminal that he was not allowed in New Jersey. And so that was the environment that he grew up in around a bunch of Cuban immigrants, just a crazy chaotic household, cocaine fueled parties. And then he moves out to Colorado and he gets arrested for kidnapping. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that might have to do more with his oh, um, the the richness of his stories. You know, but um, there's been so many times where I've been listening to Joey Diaz, and I've been thinking to myself, like, 
there's no way he's going to come up with a new story that I haven't heard before. And gosh dang it, he comes up with a new story that I've never heard before. (laughs) So anyway, uh, if there's anybody out there listening to this podcast, which I don't know how many people are going to listen to this, but you need to go and watch some Joey Diaz stand-up. In fact, I think there's been so many gold nuggets that um, I think Joe Rogan Experience, they also have the channel JRE Clips. Mm, and they'll mm-hmm. put together a compilation. There's like five of them. They're like 40 minutes a piece. And yeah. it's just like, and it's cut up pieces. That just shows you 40 minutes, basically two hours of content. Right, right. Of just... Of bits of stories. Yeah, of just Joey Diaz. Yeah, just yeah. Like, <laughs> I, and, you know... Uh, so Michael and I are brothers, and uh, and we have a father, obviously. And one time he was talking about, you know, how he doesn't understand Joey Diaz. He doesn't understand why we think he's so funny. Dad, Gary Wolf, if you listen to this, you've got to go listen to Joey Diaz stand up. You know, by the way, I know you're a baby boomer, um, <laughs> but your generation, like Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor doesn't hold a candle up to Joey Diaz. I'm sorry. I know that that's sacrosanct to say, but I, I never really understood the Richard Pryor thing. I really didn't. And and part of the reason why I don't like Richard Pryor is because I absolutely hate Paul Mooney. I think he's just a racist yeah. piece of garbage. Um, that's Paul Mooney's funny at the same time. I do think he's funny, but he's also just just a racist idiot. And and he was the he was one of the main writers for. Richard Pryor, but I just, I never understood. So I, I can remember whenever I was growing up, uh, dad, you know, my dad, Gary Wolf, he, uh, well, I can remember whenever I was about eight years old, sitting in his 1972 Camaro, listening to a, to an audio cassette tape of Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy raw. Oh my God. And I remember coming, I remember there was a bit in Eddie Murphy raw. I think it's raw. Uh, it might've been delirious. Uh, but it's one of his specials that he did back in the eighties where he's talking about being in San Francisco and he's talking about how there's how in San Francisco there's so many gay people that uh, that the cops are gay and they don't even use sirens. They just have a gay guy on top of the car going, woo, woo, woo. Pull over. Pull over. <laughs> and I, I remember I went inside the house and my mom was washing the, was like washing dishes in the kitchen. Like, mom, guess what? Dad let me listen to. Eddie Murphy, he's so funny. And I repeated the, the bit. And I remember mom looking at me and going, I don't think you should be listening to that. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't have told her. But uh, but anyway, so so Eddie Murphy was funny, but I remember dad saying, Oh, if you like Eddie Murphy, you'll like Richard Richard Pryor. So he went to the he went to the video store and, and rented a tape of Richard Pryor and I watched it and I thought, it's not really funny. <laughs> I don't know. Now do you think I'm just playing devil. I might have been. I might have been too young. I might not have understood the, you know, the whole. I might. Some of his jokes might have went over my head because I was younger. No, I thought. Oh, gosh, I almost want to say the joke, but yeah. Uh, well, he's talking about cops or uh, cops don't kill cops; they kill you know, AGG. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! 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 Uh, yeah! No, I, no. Well, I think because I've, I've heard people talk about him. I think what made him funny was the context of the comedy scene then. He was just so, like, trailblazing, kind of like George Carlin was yeah. for, for white comedians. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and I think that's the hardest part for us uh, modern people to really understand is that back whenever Richard Pryor was doing stand-up, it was very, very controversial for a stand-up comedian to use the N-word. Right. 
And I remember listening, there was like some in, MTV special about Richard Pryor where he was talking about how uh, his use of the N-word, um, he did it intentionally because he wanted to, he wanted to de-weaponize gotcha. the N-word. And so, and, and this is kind of what Paul Mooney always talks about too, is, is he's like, look, the, you know, you know, the word, the word nigga doesn't offend me at all. You know, he's like, because if it doesn't, if it doesn't apply, let it fly. And, uh, and it's all about context. And so during slavery, if you called somebody a nigger, it was a lot more offensive. Gotcha. You know, by the way, if I ever run for political, this this has just eliminated me from being able to run for a political oh, office. Oh yeah, now. we'll chop that up and see yeah. white supremacists. But anyway, but 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 using the word, you know, using the word nigger uh, back at, during slavery was a little bit different because it, in the context of slavery, it was a very demeaning and derogatory thing. And so Richard Pryor thought, well, what if I take this word and I and I and I make it up a part of my comedic repertoire, and then I can I can basically uh, de weaponize the word right. and that was what Richard Pryor wanted to do mm. and I think it's really really sad that we live in a society now to where we've gone backwards oh you know people like Richard Pryor has, has you know because at the end of the day it's just language right. you know and language is more about intent than it is about than it is about the actual sound that the word makes when it comes out of your mouth well you know I think what's really killing comedy now is the whole social justice warrior thing because oh yeah, for sure. The, I mean, the people, the the pioneers of like how people consume media now, like Netflix, Amazon, etc. They're caving into a severe minority. Yeah, and they're letting so they they have all this influence, but oh, you better play inside the rules. You better not live on the fringe of offensive and accept or like, accepted language, with, which is where I think comedy should live. It's yeah. got to be on the fringe. Well, yes, comedy has to be. Comedy has to push the boundaries of what is quote offensive. Otherwise, it's not funny. Right. That's the point of comedy. Right. Comedy is supposed to talk. Is comedians are supposed to talk about things that are taboo, right. things that are a little, you know, a little embarrassing, right. the kind of things that you would want to bring up at a dinner party with your in-laws. Right. That's what comedy is supposed to explore. Uh, and if comedians can't do that, then, I mean, what kind of society do we live in? But comedians can do that. They just give in to these to these radical leftist social justice warriors. And the thing that pisses me off is that the media, I think, why do we give a crap about what CNN says or about what ABC says or MSNBC? Why do, why do we care if Good Morning America, they talk about... Stand-up comedian Joey Diaz used the N-word this morning. Who cares? Does I, you know, as far as street cred, whatever your definition of that is, Joey Diaz has got like that times 10. So if anything, he, I think he's well, got more, even more. Uh, it helps the fact that he's not, quote, white, even though he's obviously sp uh, of Spanish descent. Right. But um, I, th I think that also works in his favor, too. Because he can he can say things and get away with it, you know. Right. Whereas if he was, if it was Joe Rogan saying the same thing, he might not be able to get away with it. You know, I had someone tell me that they said Asians sub, uh, subscribe to a form of white supremacy, and given the environment, I did not want to argue about thinking. Okay, that is so. Hold on a second. You have to tell me this. You have to tell me like the background. So somehow, okay. Because, yeah, I don't want to give, like, any clues away. 
but I was in a certain environment where you have to be on your best behavior. Mm-hmm. You, you, okay, you might as well just say you were at work. I was at work, okay. Because okay. all everybody who's listening to this is going to know you mean right. that you were at right. work. And uh, the cer- certain person said, we were somehow talking about just racial relations now. and But, uh, yeah, this person said that, uh, yeah, Asians subscribe to a form of white supremacy. I was just thinking, okay, give me some context there. Or is somehow being successful and, like, working hard and making your own did she privilege. did she did she clarify that statement at all? No, uh, and of I course. Didn't bother because I I know what type of mind frame we both have. Well, because when you make those kind of assertions, you you don't you don't have to clarify them. Right. You know, you can just pretty much just throw that out there, and it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Even though it absolutely makes no sense, I, I I guess I guess Asians subscribe to a form of white supremacy because they believe um, in being responsible and working hard. Right. I mean, what is white supremacy anymore? So whenever you, whenever I was growing up, white supremacy was that you believe that whites by their, by their ethnic composition were superior to all other races. And by the way, that included other whites, like Jewish people, like Ashkenazi Jews, who are European Jews. The, the white, white supremacists believed that they were superior to them. Right. And it had absolutely nothing to do with your ideals. It had to do with your the the amount of melanin that you had in your skin. And so, but now white supremacy is defined by like attitudes. So if you believe in, you know, I've even heard somebody, you know, somebody on the internet say that if you believe in meritocracy, then you're oh, subscribing to a, a white supremacist ideology. Well, it was probably BuzzFeed, probably. Well, BuzzFeed. yeah. Well. BuzzFeed has no credibility because all the men that work there have extremely low testosterone. And by extremely low, I mean like most 85-year-old men have higher <laughs> testosterone than they do. My God. They were, they were, you know, I, I, I like form, I like tapered jeans, but they're, they're probably the, uh, the Clark boot wearing, uh, skin tight jeans. I cross my leg just a little bit too much. Type. Well, Hey, I will say this though. If you ever, um, watch the BuzzFeed uh, show I think it's called uh, Worth It. That's actually a pretty cool show. Really? Yeah, yeah. You can watch episodes on YouTube. So it's basically two BuzzFeed guys, two BuzzFeed beta males. They go around and they, they like, we'll say, okay, we're gonna look at, we're gonna look at pizza, or we're gonna go, we're gonna go find the best pizza, you know, for you know for the price. And so they'll find like a cheap pizza place, a mi- you know, mid range pizza place in terms of price, and then an expensive pizza place. And then they'll they'll tell you kind of like their own opinion of which one is the most worth it. I will admit, pre pre election cycle, I actually used to share and like some of their videos. Yeah, they they they, they, they have decent yeah. stuff. You know, they have. You know, I'm I'm not an ideologue. Right. I'm not going to listen to somebody because the majority of their employees subscribe to a totalitarian leftist ideology. If they produce good content, I'm going to read it and share right. it. And but uh, I think that's why I like Shapiro so much. Shapiro so much. Shapiro. Um, he's not a uh, <laughs> brother <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> he's not a uh, what, is a Trumpite. Is that even a, like a right Trumpite? Trumpite. Yeah. Well, I think. Oh, gosh, what are they? Yeah. What did they? Well, I guess you know, being on the Trump train. I, I I I voted for Trump for one reason. Trump was a dirty bomb. He was a way for me to insert a little bit of chaos into the political into the political establishment. I am a libertarian. Okay, I'm 
I'm so much of a libertarian. I'm almost an I'm almost an anarchist, and I, I and, and I thought the only way that I can really give the middle finger to the establishment is by electing this this crazy psychopath, right. and so I liked I, so I voted for Trump for that very reason. But Trump has been saying a lot of crap lately that really makes me angry and really pisses me off. You know the whole the whole you know him him saying about the Second Amendment that oh you take the guns first and then you worry about due process later. It's like uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, Mister New York, you know New York, uh, you know elitist voted for Democrat most of your life, and now all of a sudden you're going to pretend that you're a Republican. I mean, I, I knew what the shtick was, and his shtick was that he, he, he's a populist. Bottom line, Donald Trump is a populist, okay? I think he's done a lot of good things. I think he's done a decent amount of bad things. But at the end of the day, he's a populist president. So he's, he's not left. He's not right. He's going to go whichever way the political winds shift. But I'm at a point now to where I really don't care. Right. If they want to ban the Second Amendment, go ahead. I'll still get my hands on a gun. It's called the black market. Right. If I wanted to get drugs today, I can get drugs because of a black market. So I, I, I have, as a human being, I have an inalienable right, and it's a right to self-defense and self-preservation. And no bureaucrat in a, in a suit is going to tell me that I can't defend myself. So I will always have a gun. <laughs> I don't care. You can, you can ban the Second Amendment tomorrow. I'm going to always have a gun. Right. You know what? Some, there's been a couple people who brought up a faulty argument with me, and I'm not going to dive too far into this rabbit hole because it, believe me, it is. But they were talking about cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin, they're like, they brought the whole faulty argument. Oh, you know, you can buy drugs and this. I'm thinking, you can't. You can buy drugs with Bitcoin and they can't trace it back. So Yeah, kind of like something else. You Cash. Exactly. Exactly. I'm, you know, I get it. It's There's a lot of people shorting in and it is kind of a, what's the word for it, where something goes. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a bubble. Yeah. Yeah. It's very volatile. Um, I'm still skeptical about cryptocurrency. I own some cryptocurrency. I own some. I own some Ethereum. Um, I think it's. I think it's an interesting concept. I wish I would have gotten in early. I wish I would have got. I. I had a chance to buy some Bitcoin when it was selling for like seventy bucks. You know, it was like seventy bucks for one Bitcoin. And I thought maybe I should just like buy a thousand dollars worth. You know, and I really wish I would have, because then I could have sold it. You know, I could have sold it off whenever it was. Um, Whenever it was, you know, valued at twenty thousand dollars, and I, yeah, I could have made over two hundred thousand dollars. But anyway, hey, um, hey, you could feel bad. The, the guy that bought a pizza for ten thousand bitcoins, yeah, right, worth like two hundred something million dollars now. The problem with Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin is what opened the door up for cryptocurrency. I don't think it's going to last, and the reason why I don't think Bitcoin is going to last is because the processing. The, the, the amount of data or the processing fees are getting more and more. And because the way that the blockchain technology works is in order for you for a transaction to be processed, a very, very complicated mathematical formula has to be solved in the background to process the transaction. And it, it provides incredible security for a cryptocurrency, but it also means that it requires a ton of energy in the form of processors and computers, supercomputers, that can process the transactions. And those get more and more complicated the more Bitcoins are mined and the more Bitcoins are created. 
right? And the more transactions that occur within the Bitcoin network. So I think that Bitcoin is, is not sustainable. However, cryptocurrency, I believe, is here to stay. Now, whether or not Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash or Ethereum or Litecoin or something like that is going is, is, is to be the king of the hill in the future is yet to be seen. I am, I am betting on Ethereum or some other type of, uh, you know, some other type of, of, of what they call Ether-based cryptocurrencies. Ooh. They're essentially cryptocurrencies that are very, very similar to Bitcoin, but they're a little bit more simple uh, to process. You know, it's, it's, it's a little bit more simple to process the transaction. Now, if somebody happens to listen to this podcast and you're like, oh, my God, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. You're absolutely right. I know very, very little, but I know enough to be dangerous. But to me, Ethereum is, is it was very easy to buy Ethereum. And it's very easy to buy things with Ethereum, way more easier than it is to buy things with Bitcoin. So, yeah. So I, th I think that um, cryptocurrency is absolutely not going to go away mm. unless there is a, an extreme severe draconian crackdown by governments globally on cryptocurrency, which can definitely happen. And we're already starting to see that, excuse me, we're already starting to see that with China. Right. You know, China is starting to really crack down on cryptocurrencies. Right. Right, did you have to go to the restroom or something? No, I'm just oh, okay. standing up because my yeah. butt is hurting from true, sitting. True. Yeah, so China's, China's cracking down. Part of the reason why Bitcoin blew up was because um, there was a currency crisis in China that happened um, a few years ago. And the uh, yuan, or um, yeah, I think it's called the yuan, which is the Chinese currency, uh, was very, very volatile and in a place where there was a lot of instability. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of rich Chinese people, they... they uh, there you go, volatile, thank you. That's yeah. That's what I was looking for. They, they, they wanted to find a way to sort of... Uh, create a safety net for their financial investments. And so they converted a lot of their uh, liquidity into cryptocurrency. And so, you know, during this time, you saw Bitcoin prices explode whenever there was a lot of, you know, it was during this time that China was experiencing a lot of problems with their currency, is, is, is when you saw Bitcoin explode in price. And so it seems to me that the pattern, that the, that the pattern is, the more unstable a country's currency gets, the more people seek cryptocurrencies as a way to hedge against financial disaster. Right. So. Yeah, no, I was, I, I kind of like the idea of it too. Cause you think about the, the, once again, very novice when it comes to understanding how the US dollar, but the US mint is handed down to federal and then disperse from there, right? Well, but it's all controlled by... I, yeah, I mean, I'm going to give an oversimplified yeah, explanation yeah. of it. So essentially, we have a Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve essentially lends money to the government to service their debts. And then they sell the debts to the American people in the form of bonds. It's a very, very complicated, but also brilliant and ingenious financial system that was first developed by the British. Mm. And, the, and the reason why the British were able to have an empire that controlled a fourth of the Earth's landmass was because of their banking institutions, absolutely bar none. They had the best financial institutions that the world has ever seen. And the American system is based on that. I do not foresee cryptocurrency ever 
replacing the U.S. dollar. I think that the U.S. dollar, as long as we stay on kind of a British model, is going to be strong. I think that the pound sterling is always going to be a currency that's very, very strong. You know, it's it's just it's 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 the Ang- it's the Anglo-American banking system, and it's very, very it's 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 very it's very solid. But that yeah, that's essentially how the Federal Reserve works. It it finances American debt. Gotcha. Yeah. I don't know. And like I said, I don't know how, how the intricacies of how it operates, but I think like, oh, government controls this. That's why I do like about cryptocurrencies. It is, it oh, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a true free market capitalism. It's, right. It's value is based right. off how the market's doing. Right, right. Not how, I guess, yeah, the U.S. dollar is valued by the market, but it, also, yeah, well, it can be. Uh, well, there's a there's a difference between currency and price. Gotcha. So price is, to, is determined by the market. Gotcha. Currency is the is the the thing that's exchanged between two people in order uh, to purchase something. Mm-hmm. So, like back in the back in the old days, it was like I have two goats and you have a wife for me, or you have a daughter. I'll give you my two two goats for your daughter, you know. And then you know they developed money. So then it was like, okay, I've got two gold coins, and you give me two sheep. And so, like the, you know, that's that's kind of how the concept of money was developed. Right. There's a if if you are really interested in the history of finance, I recommend a book by uh, uh, Professor Neil Ferguson. He's a professor at Harvard and a fellow at the uh, Stanford Institution. Um, or no, I'm sorry, the Hoover Institution, Stanford. He's a fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's written a number of books. He's written a book called. Um, Civilization, the West and the Rest, which is a fantastic book about why Western civilization became supreme. Um, he wrote another book called War of the Worlds, which is about the history of World War II, going all the way back to uh, the, the Treaty of Versailles, the end of World War One, the rise of the Third Reich in Germany, the rise of uh, uh, Bolshevism and communism in Russia. The rise of imperialism in Japan, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and it goes all the way through to the post World War II era in the 1950s, uh, to the to the whole nuclear nuclear um, testing. Uh, he's also written another book called um, uh, this the the Square and the Tower, which is his most recent book. Um, which I'm I'm not going to get into the you know to what that book's about. But if you're really interested in the topic, there's a there's a good book that he wrote called um, the Ascent of Money, the Ascent of Money. And it's all about the history of money. Like, who was the first person to come up with the notion that you could exchange currency to purchase goods? How did it go from exchanging precious metals to exchanging paper? Why did that happen? Who was the first, or you know, group of people to establish a banking system? Like, it's it's just a very very fascinating book. But he he kind of talks about that, you know, the whole history of, of currency. But to answer your question, there's a difference. There's a difference between price and currency. Gotcha. So price is de- price is determined by the market. Gotcha. Currency is something completely different. It's gotcha. a completely different beast. Right. Good lord. Uh, sorry. And, I, and, and, and I'm sorry, but I'm not Jewish enough to explain it. No, to you. no, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um. I thought I had something to add about that, I guess. Let me backtrack a little bit. I apologize. You're talking about the whole China thing with the cryptocurrency. Um, I had the article pulled up. I guess I X'd out of it. But I, 
the gist of it is they're testing something called social currency. And I saw in China. Yeah. So basically, like your interaction. Okay. So there was actually an episode. I forget what it was called on Black Mirror. I highly suggest watching that if you haven't watched it. It's called Black Mirror. A Black Mirror. It's on Netflix. Hmm. Um, And one of the episodes was basically from one to five stars, I believe. Yeah, one to five stars. Every interaction you had in the real world. Um, they would either rate it one or five stars, and so basically you could see everyone's rating, and your rating was um, that's basically the gatekeeper for what you had access to and the quality of stuff you had access to in civilization. And like I said, I didn't like dive right into this. That sounds like a terrible idea to me. That sounds like something that's dreamed up uh, by a bunch of like commune loving communists, honestly. Well, no, I heard this. So, 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 so the currency is your reputation? Pretty much. Okay, so how do you get food? I guess if you have a good reputation, then you can go and you can like be like, hey, I need some wheat. Can you give me some wheat? Well, th- like I said, I, I should have like remembered every word of this article. Yeah. It seemed like more of like it was uh, the quality or the access to certain things. Not it was going to totally replace currency, but it's like. Well, the thing that I like about the thing that I like about currency is that it doesn't give it doesn't give a crap about what kind of person you are. That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of uh, capitalism. Capitalism works because it's not contingent upon your intentions. You can be a terrible person uh, who happens to be a really really good baker, and because you bake really high quality. Uh, bread, you end up producing bread that is bought by a food pantry that feeds the poor. Yeah, let me just right? see if I can find this on the... Uh, but, you know, living in an economy where your rating, your, you know, your rating that's given by a group of anonymous people depends on your worth in terms of your ability to trade with other individuals, to me sounds like a very, very terrible dystopic nightmare. Right. Because who's to say that you wouldn't, you know, have a group of, group of people that really are angry with you and they all team up and they're like, hey, we're going to we're going to we're going to vote and lower his rating so he can't eat anymore. Right. You know, in in a capitalistic society where you have currency, right. that can't really happen because currency is, is 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 a neutral third party system. It doesn't care if you're good or bad. Right. And you could be a terrible person and still have and have tons of money. Our society is proof of that. Right. But it's also a wonderful thing, that too. That's true. <laughs> uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton. Or B- Bill and Melinda Gates. I think Jeff hates Hillary so much, he absolutely refuses to refer to her as Hillary. He always refers to her as Mrs. Bill Clinton. Oh, yeah. Well, I've heard her referred to, I've heard her referred to as Killary. Killary? Oh, yeah. yeah Killary. Well, I mean, gosh, let me see. By the, by the way, ladies... For all for all the idiot women out there that were like, oh, she's she's uh, going to be the first female president. It's so amazing. We're going to have a woman in office. Look to Margaret Thatcher. Find a candidate like Margaret Thatcher, please. Margaret Thatcher is my is my political hero. All right. I'm not anti-woman at all. I hated I hated Hillary Clinton because she was an awful human being. Not because she had a vagina yeah, or I, has a vagina. I, I personally, this is where, like I said, I'm libertarian. I, w- I have no problem with a female president, but not Hillary. Yeah. And I think that she's like this this golden standard of what it takes to be a uh, president. And a, wo- and a role model of a woman is absolutely ludicrous to me. 
What is what did she do when she was the senator of New York? Crickets, crickets. What did she do when she was the secretary of state? Crickets, crickets. Ben, silence. Benghazi. <laughs> silence her shot. <laughs> yeah. What did she do when she was first lady? Oh, she tried to pass Hillary Hillary Care. Oh, wonderful. She tried to pass a single payer healthcare system. Great. I'm sorry. She's a terrible person. So. Uh, and I hope her plane goes down. Just no. I hope. I'm teasing. I'm joking. Secret Service. I'm joking. Please yeah. don't come after me. Those are the long list of people I hope plane goes down. Um, is the Guardian? Are they fairly credible? Yeah, the Guardian is a is a United Kingdom website gotcha. or a United Kingdom news agency. Right. I'll kind of skim through the, through uh, the whole credit thing, but essentially, the past couple of years, a big story about the future of China has been the focus of both fascination and horror. It's all about what the authorities of Beijing call social credit and the kind of surveillance is now within government's grasp. Okay, that's a red flag, number one for me. Well, the first red flag is that it's coming from China. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I just want to remind you, in the 1950s, they killed about 80 million people because of their whole, you know, wonderful communist revolution. But, like I said, they're a communist government. That sounds like something that would be thought up by, by a group of communists. That's that's like Occupy Wall Street crap. That's like the kind of stuff that you would hear coming from Occupy Wall Street. We want to have an economy, man, that's based off reputation and not based off evil currency. Gosh. They're up to this is uh, this is like scary. They're up to thirty local social credit pilots run by local authorities in huge cities such as Shanghai and I'm forgive me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, Hangzhou. And much smaller towns. And then uh, it goes on to say Sesame Credit created by fan Ant Financial, an offshoot of Chinese online retail giant Alibaba. 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 Um, uh, 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 shout out to uh, oh gosh, what's the guy's name again? The guy, the guy who owns Alibaba. It's pretty much Chinese Amazon, right? It's 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 like uh yeah, it's the Chinese version of Amazon. Right. I can't think. Of, I can see the guy's face. He's like a skinny Chinese guy. Let me look it up. Thank you, MacBook. Which yeah. Seven going on seven year old MacBook still works like a like a brand new one. MacBooks are pretty nice. Um, Alibaba. Jack Ma founded. Jack Ma is that who? Okay. Yep. Jack Ma. Shout out to Jack Ma. Jack Ma. <laughs> Jack me. Jack me off. <laughs> Officer me off. Jack. Using the secret algorithm, Sesame Credit constantly scores people from 350 to 950. Secret algorithm. Are based on factors Sounds like YouTube. considerations of interpersonal relationships and consumer habits. Yeah, that's totally... I wonder if this yep, was... Yep, Garbage. Nonsense. Dystopic nightmare. This has to be the inspiration for the episode of Black Mirror. It was, it was probably the most terrifying, and they all deal with like futuristic... Not so futuristic ideas. Like if we, like I think one of them was, uh, you basically had this little thing, like a little, they call it like the bean or something like that. It's a little tiny thing, but you can access with your eyes every every single memory you've had. I'm thinking, you know what, that's not that far in the future. I mean, that's essentially what smartphones are. Yeah. It's scary. Sm smartphones are like an analog version of that, you know. The, yeah. the, the, the vision of Ray Kurzweil right. and, and, you know, a lot of the books that he's written is that we'll have chips that are embedded in our brains and, well, we'll have phones 
that basically uh, expand our memory by allowing us to access the internet and Google, which we have now, and then eventually that'll become chips that we you know embed within our brains or maybe under the surface of our skin or maybe you know in our in our eyes that allow us to connect to Google and access the internet, and then eventually, according to Ray Kurzweil, we're going to just basically download our consciousness into a supercomputer, and then our bodies are going to be kept alive in like warehouses. Um, <laughs> You know, I hate to sound like... It's so bizarre. I hate to sound like a... Uh, he's he's the director of like artificial intelligence at Google, by the way. Really? Yeah. He's a very smart guy, but a little nutty. If you want to... There's a, there's a great documentary about him. I can't think of the name of the movie, though. Singularity? No. He wrote a book called The Singularity is Near. Um, there's a really, really good... Uh, documentary that I saw on Netflix, uh, and I'm pulling it up here. Uh, let's see here. Transcendental Man. Transcendental. Transcendental Man. The Life and Ideas of Ray Kurzweil. I highly recommend anybody, you can watch it. It looks like you can watch it on YouTube for free. There you go. Thank you, YouTube. Uh, very, very good documentary, but you also see that the man is a little unhinged. Like in the documentary, he talks about how he's, you know, his the sole purpose for which he wakes up every morning and goes to work is in the hopes that someday he'll be able to reanimate his dead father's consciousness. Yeah, I'm really about that. Break her as well. You're nutty. Which, by the way, I'm sorry I keep referencing back to Black Mirror, but there is an episode uh, where uh, a woman's husband dies in, in a car crash. And so basically, this, there's this company, they offer like something that's similar to. Uh, human tissue, although there's no blood running through the veins. And somehow you can like, it will scan every single like recorded thing and then make, basically make the best version of that person. Mm. And you're like, oh, that's actually really neat at first. But then you're like, you realize, wait, like those little subtleties that you notice with human interactions right. are not there. Right. Like, right. Okay. This is actually really scary. This person's never going to age. Meanwhile, this person's going to change and age and it's just, they're going to end up I'm sorry, spoiler alert, but at the end, she basically ends up keeping her husband and the father to her child upstairs in the attic. Yeah, and, and, and I'm sorry. I don't want to live to be – I don't want to live forever no. forever on this earth. I just don't. You know, give me a – you know, let me live to be like 80 uh, as long as I don't lose my mind towards the end of my life, and, I, and, I'll, be, and I'll be happy, but – um, I really hate to cut this short. I'm really having a really good time, but I think I'm going to have to yeah, we got call it quits because I got to get up for work. I, I actually, I've got to work all day tomorrow and then I've got to stay at work and work all night. And then oh I got to work all day the following day. Now is that so, for your clinicals, right? Yeah, for oh school. Gosh. Yeah, for graduate school. But this has been fun, man. This has yeah. been great. I've really enjoyed it. We should do it again. Yes, I agree. All righty, man. <laughs> Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks so much, Sean. Not a problem. I'll talk to you later. Peace. Peace.
Bye-bye.